Hey guys, welcome back to Our Playground. I'm Ali Fan, your host and creator of this show where we have collective conversations with visionaries and trailblazers that help us reimagine what it means to celebrate and protect our playground. If you're on the sustainable side of TikTok, then I'm sure you're no stranger to Lauren Dewey or Reward. I'm excited to welcome you guys to this conversation I had with her. Lauren is an environmental activist and video producer. She's worked with brands such as Grow, Hey Humans, and Imperfect Foods. To our growing online community, she shares her tips for eating her plants, voting with her dollar, and one of my favorites, her But Make It Sustainable series on TikTok. In this episode, Lauren talks about how she's using her film production experience and social media to bring awareness and empower positive climate action, why individual actions aren't the only thing we need to be focusing on, and she also shares her own journey in the climate movement and her gems for becoming an activist. If you guys love this conversation, please follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can share the show on your socials and tag me at AliFan with two ends. It really helps our community grow and I appreciate all of you. Have a fantastic week. Now joining us on our playground, it's Lauren Kirby. So, uh, hi Lauren. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, When I started my podcast, I remember you were one of the first guests that I ever wanted to have on the show. Um, And it's funny how I discovered you. It's kind of random, but I just saw one of your videos on like the For You page and I was just like, yeah, this girl's pretty cool. So anyways, uh, how, how's your week been so far? Oh, well, thank you for the kind words. I'm so psyched to be here. I love, I, I wish I started a podcast when I was your age. Like I am so floored at the creativity and drive and just like pursuing dreams and passions and everything. Um, from a younger generation. So I'm so psyched to be here and I applaud you for doing this. This is epic. Um, Thank you. My week is good. So far, so great. I'm getting married in September and I'm quickly learning that planning a wedding, let alone a sustainable, low-waste, plant-based wedding has become a lot of work, but I'm very excited to bring family and friends together. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. That's going to be fun. Um, So I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes yet, but I always like to ask this question. It's so interesting to see like different perspectives um, and what each person thinks. So when you hear our playground, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I think my intuition kicks in and it's the earth, right? Like playground is place places where we play. Um, for me, that shows up, I guess my playground or our playground is the beach and always has been the beach. I grew up in LA or the beach cities of LA. Um, and it was actually my entry into the climate environmental space was ocean conservation work with the Surfrider Foundation. So yeah, I guess that's a long winded answer to your question. Our playground to me would be the earth and our beaches. Yeah, I haven't heard beaches, but that's definitely a part of our earth, a very important part too. So can you walk us through where the name Relorn comes from? If the listeners, for all of you listening, um, Lauren is Relorn on all her socials. So um, how did you get, well, you talked about how you got into sustainability, but where did that name come from? Yeah, my full name is Lauren Faree. And so R-E shows up in both my first and last name. And I thought it was just a fun pun on words because a lot of words in sustainability, everything from reduce, reuse, repair, refill, to more um, 
regener- regenerative, regenerative words like re- regeneration, reciprocate, reciprocity, responsibility, all have the prefix re in them. So I thought it was a fun, a fun play on words, re Lauren. That's, that's yeah, the connection it. through everything. Yeah, super cool. So what were the first steps that you took to get into sustainability and leaving, or sorry, living a more eco-conscious life? I think I, I have to start by giving my mom some serious acknowledgement because she definitely raised us with sustainable practices in the home. And I think my mom, partially too, just growing up in LA, it's, well, she's first generation American. Her folks are from Argentina. Um, and I'm learning that there's a lot of practices or traditions in South American cultures that are very sustainable by nature without them calling it sustainable, you know, things like reusing everything. Like they, my family in Argentina never throws away anything. You would reuse something until it broke essentially. Um, anyways, so she was raised, I think kind of with some like secretive sustainable practices or they just didn't call it sustainable. Um, but definitely with reusing and with um, being connected to their food and things like that. And so, and growing up in LA, then I was raised in LA and it's just a very progressive area where you have a lot of um, conversations already about reducing your carbon footprint, things like that. So my mom raised my sisters and I had two sisters with a lot of those practices in the home. But honestly, it wasn't until it's part of my like climate testimony, I guess, Um, It wasn't until the presidential election of 2016 when my playground was under extreme threat and the topic of offshore oil drilling along the coast of LA became a a hot topic. And all of these permits were going to be sold to start drilling along the coastlines of California, specifically LA. And LA has always been a very protected area. Um, You see it in like the county south of us and north of us, but not LA. And so I remember Google, I literally Googled how do you stop offshore oil drilling in Los Angeles? And that's how I found the Surfrider Foundation. And I cannot encourage folks enough to join an environmental NGO because once I started going to Surfrider meetings and their events and their beach cleanups and their summits and their trainings and everything, I found so much community. And and I think climate advocacy work in particular can feel super isolating and super overwhelming because you're like, I'm just one person, what difference can I make? But when you're plugged into a community, you're like, wow, look at how powerful these group of people are, this group of people are, and look at the amazing work they're doing. And I'm surrounded by people who are also in this fight, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's coming together. Mm -hmm. I really love that. So um, uh, I know you have a broadcast journalism degree, is that correct? Yep. (laughs) So you have like experience in, you know, videography and things like that. So, um, through your work, you're a content creator and so, and you're an activist. So how do those two things kind of intertwine? And do you think that social media is like a powerful way to advocate, especially in like this digital world? Totally. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I studied TV and TV and broadcast journalism in our film department and where I went to school. And I think I've always loved storytelling. I think that's the through line with everything. Like that shows up from when I was a kid and doing childhood theater and like putting on plays for my family to even like, I guess it's another South American tradition, just even the way I tell stories at our dinner table, just love telling stories. 
And so with broadcast journalism, it was kind of like the documentary side of the film department because I didn't necessarily want to write scripts, but wanted to tell true stories. And the umbrella of our major was documentary filmmaking, broadcast journalism, and narrative TV. Um, so I love that. I also loved, I mean, that maybe this is my theater background. I love being the one with the microphone and getting to be like the messenger or the storyteller of it. So broadcast journalism felt like a good fit. Um, anyways, I worked for like a big company and was doing a lot of video production for them and creating like short form and social content for them. Um, but realized I didn't want to work for a big company anymore. And this is also since so within the past five years was like, wait, there are a lot of stories that are untold. There's a lot of need and there's a lot of um, urgency behind these stories of climate change. And so kind of found a natural intersection, I guess, in that there's a lot of folks who are talking about sustainability and climate online, but there will never be like a shortage of it. Do you know what I mean? So I was like, wow, this isn't a place where competition exists. You know, it's like we're all, this should be something that is like a household conversation. And and there's always room for more video editors or video producers or whatever, whatever's your skill set. And so I honestly just started documenting things I was doing in my house. I'm like, here's, here's a zero waste razor I use to like, here's how we protest or here's how we organize to here's how we compost to hear whatever, just showing things that I was already doing. And it, it felt like, or it was received really well. And I was like, wow, there's a huge opportunity here to almost get to be like an educator and Mm -hmm. Or, and TikTok has amazing programs like with the Learn on TikTok community or the um, Instructor Accelerator program and things like that, where they're giving us tips and support to share what we're passionate about with our communities. So for me, it felt like a very natural intersection. I think my long-term goals would be to get into like feature-length documentary filmmaking because how many, like for you, how many films have you watched where you're like, wow, that really changed my perspective or, or really like gave the microphone to other people to share their stories on how they're being yeah. impacted by mm-hmm. different things. And I would love to get into that space eventually. Yeah, I loved how you described that. Um, you know, through documentaries, there's so many aspects to it and you can tell so much um, through just one film. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, I know what, before getting into the climate movement, there's a lot of eco-anxiety and just the fear of like, again, your actions don't really matter and that you, if you go into it, it doesn't matter because like our climate is already like threatened. Um, so have you had any encounters with that and how have you overcome it? Yeah, totally. I, I'm excited to talk to you about this today too. I was thinking about it this morning. I think for me recently, how, of course, I've experienced eco-anxiety. Um, I think every environmentalist has. I think it shows up differently for every environmentalist, though, because I also have to, I'm constantly checking my privilege as a woman who benefits off of white privilege and the insulation of that, who grew up in a predominantly white community and all of the like luxuries and comfort of that. So while I've never been immediately threatened by like air quality, or, or not not necessarily like, I should be careful how I say that because wildfires definitely affect the whole state of California, but something like living near an oil refinery where they continue to expand and I'm inhaling the direct 
emissions pollution from their operations. But 15, 20 minutes down the street from my house where I grew up, there's oil refineries and they're continuing to expand and they're getting into areas of schools and hospitals and neighborhoods. And the lack of environmental justice there um, shows shows how my white, white privilege shows up in the climate space. And so while my eco-anxiety might be more about being a future mom or wanting to have future children someday and thinking about the world that they will grow up in. And I think that's always been a fight for me or, or been like one of the reasons why I keep fighting. It shows up differently for folks who live in Wilmington, California, who are inhaling the direct emissions from the Shell refinery down their street. And so eco anxiety shows up different. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not experiencing the immediate effects of pollution and climate crisis every day. Whereas folks who live 20 minutes away from me are. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, yes, I can agree with that. I think for me, my reason is just as youth, obviously you've probably heard this, like we don't want to grow up without, you know, having opportunities and like, you know, having to kind of fight for our future is what I'm in this for. Totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. Or even the fact, like when I was, I forget which article I was reading the other day, but they just talked about, oh no, it was a podcast. It was a podcast. And they run this, they run earth through different like simulations through computations on, on, in this software and see if we, if we continue this trajectory of business as usual with emissions or with temperature rising or ocean level, ocean, ocean sea level rising, what will happen? And they're able to look at earth from like a computational standpoint. And it's, it's insane that it is understood that there will be parts on earth that are deemed uninhabitable. And it's something out of like a site, it's like out of Mad Max. You're like, that is insane. And it's just understood and accepted, you know? Yeah. But I think recently how my ego anxiety shows up is I get, I get mad. I get really mad. And I listen to these podcasts or I listen to the, the daily from the New York Times. They're just talking about because we're we might be very aware of the extreme weather events in our country. But then when you read mm -hmm. international news yeah. and hear about international news, what's going on in in Europe and Bangladesh and India and sub-Saharan Africa and Guatemala, you're like, whoa, you know, the, those are two are the untold stories of climate change in full effect. And so that's when I get mad. And I know that's a symptom of eco-anxiety. Um, so yeah, back to your original question. I, I definitely experience it. And I also am like constantly checking my privilege that I experience it out of not being immediately affected by climate change. Well, some folks every day are like, yeah, they're mad. They're living next to a refinery and breathing all those fumes. And the refinery is mm -hmm. continuing to expand. Or, or they live abroad, think like you live abroad and you live in Bangladesh and 60% of your country is underwater. You know, I would be mad too. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so how do you stay motivated? Because as an activist, it can be draining. And how do you make sure that you can like take care of yourself, um, especially when you really feel like you know, like yeah. you said, mad and just like frustrated. Yeah. Do you follow intersectional environmentalists? Yes, I do. 
Oh, they're the best, aren't they? They're the best. Um, They had a post the other day that I thought was so good, and I feel like it helped define this on how do we we cope with the eco-anxiety. And something they had shared that's so good, and it said, play your role. And I think that's what gives me gives me life or like his life giving when I feel so like life drained. And even this morning, I think when I get, when I get to play my role in my community or like in my house or in my family and granted, I'm also very fortunate that I have family members who are on the same page with me and we, and we really like talking about climate change or we really like talking about sustainable Mm -hmm. solutions or just being connected with nature. Um, So I'm very fortunate in that. And I have friends too, who I get to engage in that conversation with. Um, but when I remember playing my role, I'm like, okay, it can feel daunting when I, when I pull out and I'm like, I am one of 390 million Americans, you know, or I'm one of 8 billion people on earth. Like that can feel daunting. But when I said, I'm one, I'm one of two people who lives in this house, you know, and like the role I get to play in this house of, of returning our food waste nutrients back into our soil, you know, or like properly disposing of the, the little plastic that we do use. You know, or like assessing our pantry and seeing where I can avoid more waste or where we can get creative and avoid food waste. You know, mm-hmm. we have election coming up in California. I'm like, OK, I get to do my responsibility as a person in my community to do some research. And, and what does this mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. And so when I play my role, it makes this like daunting population I'm, you're a part of way smaller, you know, mm. yeah. and that's exciting. Or even like um, the story I told the other day was we had friends come over. We did like vegan sushi night and they came over and we made sushi with like tofu and mushrooms. It was so good. Um, And some of my friends don't compost. And we're like, wait, where does this go? Like, right. We're like Mm -hmm. cooking. Like, where does this go? I'm like, okay, this is really cool where I get to make our actions in our house an invitation, you know, and not using Mm -hmm. judgment and not and not doing it for them not like grabbing it and putting it in the compost, but rather engaging in the conversation with them, you know? Because maybe they're not listening to the podcast or reading the books or like engaged in the type of, um, not even activism, but just like activities that I am, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, could you like elaborate a little bit on, you know, trying to get like your family or your friends kind of more involved in on this climate conversation? Yeah. I think this also goes to to playing my role. I sometimes I get um, frustrated that I'm not making a bigger impact or I'm like, oh, I, f- I should be doing more. And then I remember like my role as a content creator is is communicating and listening and engaging with my digital community, kind of like with you right now, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, this is how we met, how beautiful and wonderful that we got to meet online. And... I remember my role too is to be honest and transparent and engage and listen and communicate with this community that I've built because that's my role as a creator, you know? Mm-hmm. But with family and friends, I hear you. I definitely have as as many friends as I have that are on board and are and are hungry and ready and eager to be a part of the solution. I also have quite a few friends who are just like, no thanks, not for me. And to be oh. completely honest, it's it, my desire at times is to just like avoid them so I'm like I don't want I don't want them to think I'm weird for like you know sorting through the trash you know I don't want them to think or like especially last year being an election year I was like I don't I don't even want to be around them 
because they have like such such different thoughts than me and I hear so much like judgment and harsh criticism and lack of empathy coming from their mouths you know so but again like playing my role it's like I shouldn't only be hanging out with people who share the same thoughts as me because what good does that do you're not like growing you're kind of just right maybe I get to be like the one person that challenges this person's perspective and offer something else but also like drop my ego and drop my pride and truly understand where they're coming from because I think at the end of the day Mm -hmm. my fiance Brooke says this all the time it's so awesome he's like at the end of the day we have the same desires it's like to be safe and for our kids to be safe Mm -hmm. that's what we want Mm -hmm. and it just shows up very differently for all of us oh I see different values and yeah like how you grew up and stuff I think what's missing sometimes is yes I want to be safe and I want my kids to be safe and I want others to be safe yeah you know I think sometimes that's the missing part that we are not super aligned on yeah Mm -hmm. so um when did you start on Instagram or TikTok Instagram um, I mean, I always had an Instagram. I feel like as a bona fide millennial, it was like the, the channel that everybody had. And then in 2019, my coworker, my old coworker, she's one of my best friends. She showed me TikTok and we used to like oh, wow. go watch TikToks on our own. And then we would like share <laughs> our favorites with each other and be like, what oh, did you, did you that. see this one? Did you see this one? And you have to remember yes. too, like at the beginning of TikTok, there were like few, few people creating. So the chances of you seeing something that your friend did on your 40 page was like very, very high, you know, but now there's like millions of people creating content, billions, billions of people creating content. And so the chances of you seeing something that your friend did are actually kind of low. Anyways, um, so she used to share that with me. So I started on Instagram and then I got a TikTok and then my like, my COVID story in 60 seconds was I quit my job at that big company. I was planning to go live in Argentina for four months and and stay with my mom's Mm -hmm. family and practice my Spanish and hike Patagonia and like work with this, work as like a nanny with this vegan family and all these plans. Um, But then obviously COVID changed it. So I came home Mm -hmm. early and I was like unemployed and had moved out of my apartment and was like, what the heck do I do? Um, And a lot of video productions were like completely like canceled in 2020 because you couldn't bring people together on set and so started making TikToks I was like I edit videos this is what I know this is what I can do and I was like living with my mom and making videos and looking for work and then found like I said like found an awesome community online and found that there weren't that many people talking about sustainability yet and also it's not Mm -hmm. a space to compete but rather to share ideas and share Mm -hmm. these tools and resources and um so yeah, kind of fell into it last year. It was last, I think it was last April that I made like my first viral TikTok, I guess. And then yeah, it's been so much fun since. Yeah, it's proof that everything kind of falls into place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if it feels a little bit like unsure, um, uncertain. Yeah. And something actually Brooks and I have been talking about quite a bit lately is I think I, I think the beauty in the position I was in last year, which was so awesome, is I was making things like not to get paid. At the it, like, it, I wasn't trying to see how to monetize it. I was just making things that I cared about. 
And I feel like now, now that I get paid as a content creator, I feel like I'm missing some of the creating just because, you know, because now I'm supporting myself, like making a, like a a livelihood off of this. So the the stakes are different, you know, but also last year I was like living with my mom and wasn't paying rent and had a lot of like my safety net was in full effect, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm But now that there's something at stake, I'm like, okay, I have to find a way to make money doing this while also creating meaningful educational content, you know? Yeah, trying to find that balance. Has, like, what's your favorite thing about TikTok? I know, like, mm. it's, at the beginning, it, you said it was easier to get noticed. Um, but, like, right now, what's your favorite thing about it? I think my favorite thing always about TikTok has been I am floored at how creative and brilliant and wonderful and funny and talented people are. You know, like when you come across something on your for you page and you're like, wow, look at, look how these people just like made up this dance, you know? Or like, even with like video editing, I'm like, people aren't shooting on big crazy cameras but are coming up with like amazing transitions or like amazing ideas with their phones or like, I love I love cooking TikTok, especially like plant based oh, vegan TikTok. I'm like, people mm-hmm. are making coconut shrimp out of hearts of palm. I'm like, what? People are so creative or they're so funny. Or like people just documenting everyday life, like with their moms or with their kids or with their dogs or their husbands, whatever. I'm like, this is so people are just so creative. And it's such an inclusive space. Like whatever you're mm-hmm. looking for, you will find. Yeah. While there can be like trolls and I'm not talking about them. I think that's just like something that is almost like expected now as we move mm-hmm. to more digital communities because people have this anonymity that they don't have to show yeah. their face and they can say like harsh, evil, terrible things. Not them. But just just like the community and and yeah talent and creativity that exists on the platform is so awesome yeah it's super cool to see um so we touched on this a little bit earlier but from your experience how powerful is like community-led action compared to individual actions and how important is it to create a collective movement regarding climate change yeah i mean yeah it's like exponentially Expon- uh, from an impact perspective, obviously it's exponential. Because mm-hmm. something, this is the perfect example. I was thinking about this the other day. If I, okay, for example, right now it's in Southern Cal- in California, in the whole West, we're experiencing one of the worst droughts since yes. the 1930s. So I can write to my state senators and my representatives and say, what are we doing to conserve water? What are we doing to implement regenerative practices to keep water in the ground? What are we doing to prohibit people from using water? Because if you walked like a square block in my neighborhood, you would never know that we're in a drought. Like people's lawns are as green as ever. You would never know. Mm -hmm. You know, you Mm -hmm. see people like leaving their their, like hose sprinkler on to water their roses. And I'm like, wait, what? Like people don't understand true Mm -hmm. water scarcity. Like what? when we run out, it's not like you can, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, I see it in my own neighborhood too. Yes. So I can write to my senator and I am one voice. And granted, every every representative, I think we undermine the power of us as constituents and our like local governments 
And they have to tally every time someone calls and mentions an environmental problem, an educational problem, a waste problem, an access problem. They, they have to like mark this as data, essentially. Mm. Um, but on a, on a grander scale, environmental NGOs or communities can gather together and essentially like write petitions or write, or, or write um, documents to be passed as policies. Yeah which is so powerful. So instead of me saying, and, and granted, there's a lot of power of me going to city hall or me writing to my representative and saying, this is something that matters to me as a constituent. But when you go with an environmental NGO, they have like access to policy maker, like policy makers or writers or scientists or data analysts or all these people who are essentially creating the potential policy to pass, you know? Yeah. And there's power in that. So like the perfect one, um, our perfect example that I got to be part of is when I was living in Santa Monica in Los Angeles, we passed a single use plastic ordinance in the in the city of Santa Monica. And it wasn't one person who kept calling and saying, like, I'm sick and tired of seeing all this plastic trash on our beaches or in our streets or in our communities. Like we have to abolish this. It wasn't one person. It was people coming together, like several different environmental NGOs from Heal the Bay, Surfrider Foundation, Sierra, like all of these different NGOs, along with the city's Office of Sustainability. And then in addition, like people, individuals coming and speaking at City Hall. But all of those things together is what passed the ordinance, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Um, so sustainability in the climate movement, from what I've seen, what I've seen comes with like gatekeeping and but it's really a spectrum and there's so many like aspects to it. So um, why is it so important like with any movement to create an open space where all voices are heard and it's, it's you know, inclusive and like making sure that we're not like leaving out some people, and, you know? Totally. Yeah, I, I get the gatekeeping. I think, I don't know if it was an era of the movement or if it just comes with like more experience as identifying as an activist or like a, um, a sustainability enthusiast or what. Um, but at the beginning, you, what am I trying to say? I should say at the beginning of my journey, cause I'll, I'll own it. At the beginning of my journey, I would look at people who are like driving cars that were pumping emissions or were eating like super meat rich diets or we're using a ton of single-use plastic. And it's so easy to look at those people specifically and like and pass judgment, you know? Mm -hmm. But what good does that do if that person feels like they're being judged or outcasted? Yeah. Or like, sure, maybe they know and they choose anyways. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like mm -hmm. privilege and excess in that for sure. Um, but maybe they don't know. Yeah. You know, and so why is it important to create an inclusive movement is because then there's more people in the movement you know and, and like we just said there's strength in numbers when a community <laughs> mm -hmm. effort versus an individual effort so it's actually only hurting ourselves by gatekeeping because you're mm -hmm. at like you have fewer people yeah. who you're speaking to and who you're empowering who we're empowering um so yeah obviously extremely inclusive i'm i'm seeing this show up i i am making a tiktok right now on sustainable groceries and trying to like educate and inspire folks on different things to use or different ways to shop for food. But I 
I'm having a really hard time putting this together and I almost feel like I need to make a disclaimer video at the beginning because there are so many food deserts in the county of LA. And so while I talk about like, here are ways to save costs, here are ways to avoid plastic, here are ways to avoid pesticides, like all of this, I'm like, there are people who don't even have access to a grocery store. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to sit here and it's almost a form of gatekeeping, if I'm going to sit here and be like, you should shop from Imperfect Foods or you can go to Ralph's or you can go to Grocery Outlet. But if folks don't even have access to that Mm -hmm. and I'm saying that this is like the only way you can sustainably shop for groceries, then like I've completely missed the mark, Mm -hmm. you know? So instead being like, hey, there are systems in place that suppress a lot of people from having access to fresh produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you start uncovering like, whoa. I mean, then the ego anxiety kicks in, right? Because you're like, how are we even supposed to com- combat this? Like, everybody's got to eat. Mm-hmm. And, like, and some people just don't even have access to like fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's... It's honestly crazy. I didn't think of, well, I knew there were food deserts, but just thinking about that is just like crazy. Right. Uh-huh. So as on a personal level, how have you evolved? Um, again, you talked about, you know, you you started out with a little bit of judgment, but then, you know, you slowly, slowly see all the different sides and different experiences. So how have you evolved on this sustainability journey? I think, yeah, I think a lot. I think I was lured into like almost like the aesthetic of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, look at all yeah. these like cute jars. Like everything is in like cute glass jars and like the aluminum um, Tupperware and things like that. Like it's very easy <laughs> to get sucked into the lure of um, sustainability. And then you're like, wait, 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 isn't the whole point is that we're just like consuming less in general? Yeah. You know? And so yeah. consuming less would be instead of buying like a new glass jar, why don't just like reuse the one you have, you know? Yep. And mm-hmm. there is something to be said. I mean, it's shitty because it's, sorry, it's, it's, it's difficult because the approach has been like, how do you make sustainability um, like desirable in a, in a capitalistic society, right? Here is the most sustainable mm-hmm. thing you can mm-hmm. buy. You know, the, yeah, the most, um, the, the car that produces the least amount of emissions, the clothes that were made um, ethically where the, where the garment workers were paid a living wage, right? But it's still mm-hmm. like serving something to you on a platter. And I feel like as a content creator who works with brands and I'm essentially creating advertisements, right? On yes. my social channels, I feel like I'm a walking contradiction because something that, um, remake our or remake our world they're an amazing ethical fashion NGO and or nonprofit and they have a shirt and it's like you can't buy our way out of climate change and it's so true oh. it's so yeah, true that is every, so, oh my oh wow. it's so true it's like buy this car buy this phone case buy I'm just looking at my desk it's like buy this plant pot buy this like notebook made from recycled plastic or like recycle fit, right? Uh-huh. Just buy this stuff. Like, whoa, we can't, like, mm-hmm. if anything, we have to stop buying. We have to buying. Like, stop buying. Yeah. And we saw that last year, right? Like when we mm-hmm. stopped buying, I mean, I live right next to an airport. So when we stopped buying plane tickets, 
like parts of India could see the Himalaya mountains for the first time in like decades. Wow. You know? So I think I've evolved a lot. I think at the beginning I was attracted by like the lure and the aesthetic of sustainability. I was also gatekeeping when I was like, oh, you can't eat meat and be an environmentalist. And I think, mm. I think that's a flaw of like some of the leaders in the movement too, because there's a film, I think it's Forks Over Knives or uh, Forks Over Knives or, or one of the like vegan films, mm-hmm. Food Inc or one of the two. And they're interviewing an, an environmentalist farmer and he says, you cannot call yourself an environmentalist and still eat animal products. And so when you're being fed that narrative from like the media you watch, of course we're gonna think that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's been a lot of amazing work from amazing creators and educators and, and experts and leaders in the sustainability space to be like, knock it off with the gatekeeping and we have to own our imperfections, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as perfect sustainability. Boom, you got it. Yeah, uh-huh. Because not everyone has the same like access to resources um, and things like that. So, yeah. And I think consumption, not a lot of people connect that to sustainability and just like trying to be more conscious of what you're bringing in and stuff um, is something that's often misunderstood. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned it. So... Um, how have your Argentinian roots, like what practices growing up do that you do today? I think a lot of them are more about like the social pillar of sustainability. So you have like ecological or the three E's, right? Ecological, economy, and ethical. I think the ethical or the people pillar of sustainability shows up a lot in South American traditions. Like one that I think of, and we actually just started drinking it again recently, but they drink mate like everywhere. It's like how it's like how Americans drink coffee. It's like, you know, there's Starbucks mm-hmm. on every corner. Instead of there being Starbucks, there's agua caliente, which is hot water, like stations everywhere. Because people just bring their thermoses and their mate, which is like loose leaf tea that you drink through a filtered straw. So imagine just like mm-hmm. a big like cup of loose leaf tea Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a tiny cup and then the straw has a a strainer at the bottom and you just keep pouring hot water on it and you drink it and so Mm -hmm. i think that but you share it with everyone it's like there'll be a table of like 12 people and you're sharing this tea with everyone it's super socially connected or like lunch and i know this isn't true for all folks who live in argentina like lunch is like a almost like a ceremonious thing where you come home and you have a proper lunch with your family from work. You come home, you have a proper lunch with your family, you take a nap and you go back to work. I'm like, uh. what? And just being like very socially connected and think about that for like your mental health. Like in the US, uh. if you give students or workers like a two hour lunch break where they got to go home, like see their family, hug their kids, hug their hug their relatives, whatever have a nice home cooked <laughs> meal. I'm like, oh my goodness. When I was working in like corporate America, I would literally eat at my desk. Mm-hmm. Like eat salad or whatever, yeah. like my leftovers at my desk constantly. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of social elements of that. There's also like, I mean, it's not even, again, it's not, they don't call it sustainability, but like, it's also just a, a like, what am I trying to say? Uh, what am I trying to say? 
uh, like a cost-effective thing too. Like everyone takes public transportation. Everyone takes the bus. Yeah. You know, and here that there's this like socioeconomic perspe- perception of public transportation. I think in the U.S., yeah. it's like if you're taking the bus. It's because you can't afford a car. Whereas yeah. <laughs> in other countries, like if you look at Europe, it's like everyone yeah. in Europe is taking the train. Everyone, mm-hmm. like wealthy people, low-income people, like everyone is taking the train. Mm-hmm. Because the infrastructure exists to just like move people to serve it to yeah. serve its purpose of moving people, but here in the U.S., there's this like association of public transportation as being less than, you know. Yeah, I honestly I don't know how that came about, but it is so true. Um, yeah. Um, so. Do you think that growing up in Los Angeles and California in general has impacted your sustainability journey? Because as you said, California is a progressive state and you guys have beaches. Um, you're obviously wildfires are heavily impact the area. So how have you, how would you say that's in, impacted your journey? Totally. I guess, yeah, I also don't, well, that's not true. This is actually another part of my climate testimony. I was going to say I don't know anything else because I've lived here all my life, but that's not true. My first job out of college, I lived in Oklahoma City. And it's actually nuts how it's become part of my like climate journey as well because oil and gas runs Oklahoma. Just like Texas and it just it runs. Like everyone I knew, all the friends I made worked in oil. Wow. So whether they were st- they, they studied it in school, they went and became like landmen and worked on the rigs and then became like executive or whatever. We're working in in oil and gas. And it runs, it runs that state. And I remember there was like a re- like really, really bad layoffs at some of like the top oil and gas companies and it affected everybody. And it's like, even like the basketball stadium is run by Chesapeake, which is Chesapeake Gas, which is one of like the top polluters in wow. the world, you know? Or Devon yeah. Energy is like the tallest building in Oklahoma City. It's like 700 feet tall or something like that. And Oklahoma is flat, flat, flat. So it like sticks up mm-hmm. straight to the sky. And that's an oil and gas. It's an oil and gas company. And oh. so it's so nuts. It was so nuts living in an area where they don't know where they don't know anything else. It's like oil and gas is it mm-hmm. is the past, the present, and the future. And then you come to California and we're like, we're eliminating, we're eliminating gas cars by 2030. We are like yeah. doing all yeah. of this work to install renewable energy. So our electricity that we power our electric cars with is going to be clean energy. Um, yeah, so so different compared yeah, to that's two. crazy. But yeah, it is, it is always a humbling and extremely frustrating when even I when I go like one state over like Arizona or you go to Nevada or whatever and you're like oh wow the policies just don't exist here yeah and there's so much work to do so it's important that we Mm -hmm. get break out or I break out of where I grew up and be like oh yeah like our plastic bag ban that's like the famous one right our plastic bag ban in California passed in like I forget 2010 or 2000 like early, early years ago and then you go mm-hmm. one state over and you're like plastic bags everywhere. Yeah. It's crazy. You know? Yeah. That that just set, says how important policy is and passing policy and stuff. Totally. Okay. Yeah. So um, touching on 
you know, of governments and large corporations, um, which are like the top players when it comes to like the effects of climate change. What do you think is the biggest priority regarding the climate crisis and how do we as constituents and just individuals, how do we keep these institutions accountable? The biggest problem of the climate crisis is our like rise in emissions, right? In, in my opinion, the and the lack of um, the lack of solutions to sequester carbon from the atmosphere because that's what's happening is there's too much mm-hmm. heat trapping carbon and methane and greenhouse gases in the air and we're not doing enough to pull it out and we're putting more in. Yeah. Right, that's a the imbalance is what's causing mm-hmm. this. So how do we co- how do we combat that? We stop putting emissions in the air and we start pulling it out mm-hmm. and we can pull it. And I think the issue with the climate crisis, is everyone wants like a one size fits all silver bullet solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It won't be, it'll be everything happening in like every field at all times. So yes, it yeah. is, it is energy. It is how we create energy to be used for transportation, for industry, for home, right? Like it is, it is energy, but it's also how we grow our food. And like in, within the food system, everything is, this is what I'm learning is everything is intrinsically connected. So while there are bigger like contributors to yes. the climate crisis, mm-hmm. like it will require all systems changing. Mm, yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm actually part of Citizens Climate Lobby. Sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah. The youth team. And we talked with a... Uh, a representative um, in Washington State and um, a lot of her work has to do with like social justice and stuff and the team we hadn't really uh, I guess got into that and like we realized how like are the bill that we are trying to like, get endorsements for it's for um, uh, energy innovation and having a carbon dividend yeah so that's only one part of of you know climate the climate crisis and there's so many other social justice issues connected and so i think yeah how you said it's all interconnected it's it's actually crazy because climate change is more just like a social change yeah um, when you really look at it Mm -hmm. yep exactly yeah so is there anything that empowers you that you're seeing more people being aware of this issue and taking action and anything that you're optimistic about Mm. I mean, you have to be optimistic, right? Um, I think it was the Sunrise Movement folks or folks from the Sunrise Movement who said there is hope in action. And I loved hearing that because it's like if we're if we're going to sit on the wayside and wait for someone else to implement solutions... I like not take action, then the, there's not a lot of hope in that, right? Because if if you are entitled to live an actionless life, then so is everyone else. Yeah. Right? Granted, there are people who are in very powerful positions who are like, it is kind of their responsibility to act on behalf mm-hmm. of constituents, their population, like the people as part of their job description, you know? That's what's crazy. I mean, that's a tangent for another day, like people who get into politics or become decision-making people who actually are like forgetting that it's about 
taking care of people. Anyways, um, so it gives me hope, I think, is, mm-hmm. yeah, seeing more people take action. Yeah. I also used to say this, and I, and I take it back. I used to say the youth is what gives me hope. And then I realized that older people who created this mess or who have power to, to clean mm-hmm. up this mess were also saying, like, the youth is what gives me hope. I'm like, what? Then, then if, it, if they give you so much hope, then listen to them, you know? So <laughs> I, I think what gives me hope is, like, more and more people taking action. Uh-huh. Or even just showing like interest in this because it's not going to be a handful of experts who like change this, right? It's going to be the adoption and adaptation and like excitement about this movement and this space yeah. from mm-hmm. from everybody. And so, yeah, like even yesterday, my friend told me mm-hmm. you got a hybrid car, a plug-in car, and there's solar panels on his house. And I was like, what? And he's like not someone who would identify as an environmentalist by any means. And I was like, oh, it's so cool. Like more and more people adopting this. Mm-hmm. That definitely gives me hope. I think too, my my instinct is what gives me hope is like seeing more and more people connect with nature and realizing that we are part of it. We're not separate from it, you know? I think that shows up like in the TikTok community too, yes. like plants, like everyone is getting plants, you know? Like everyone has like indoor pl- uh-huh. like indoor plants or like gardening. People are being really connected True. with gardening yeah. or like putting their hands in soil, whether it's for an indoor plant or or a garden plant or vegetable plant. Um, it's it's been really cool because you know when people are connected to other living things, like other non-human living things, then we are connecting to the other part of nature more. Yeah, yeah. and if we take care of nature, it'll take care of us. Boom! You got it. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to get into some like quick questions. Okay. What is like the most sustainable thing anyone can do? And I know obviously there's um, other factors, but just in general. Yeah. I Wow, you're like asking all the questions I've been thinking about recently. So this is really cool to get <laughs> to share these with you. Um, I mean, first and foremost, it's voting. The youth are, yeah. the youth are in a tough position, right? Because if you're not 18 yet, you can't vote. Yeah. Um, but obviously voting because those people are making decisions on your behalf every two years, like all the time. So while you only get to vote every two years, there's people who are making decisions daily that that have a bigger effect on fighting the climate crisis. So voting is obviously first and foremost. And then honestly, like this is a con- or contrary controversial thing to say but it is your diet you know you get to vote once every two years four years but you get to eat three times a day or or however many times a day and so not even just eating plant-based but like choosing eating locally eating seasonally like supporting supporting small farmers yeah um supporting farmers who don't use pesticides or who have regenerative practices on their farm Mm -hmm. or growing your own food but it is with your diet and there are obviously foods that are have a smaller footprint than others. And so I, I would just um, recommend and suggest that people become hyper-connected with their food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So next one. What is your go-to, or go-to plant-based recipes? <gasps> That's a fun one. Yes. Um, 
Well, this is a fun tradition we do in our house. We do Taco Tuesday every Tuesday. Like, I think we've only missed it a handful of times. Um, so yeah, we make tacos every Tuesday. We make plant taco, plant-based tacos. We're having a, a vegan Mexican company cater our wedding and they make all of their own plant proteins and so they have got it down. Cool. It's like from several generations. Like we met the owner of the company. It's from like her grandmother's grandmother. And, and the sauce that they prepare it in and the texture is insane. It's so many spices and it's wonderful. So they're pre-seasoned, pre-seasoned, pre-cooked plant, plant proteins. And so you just warm it up. Like you put it in a pot of boiling water for 20 minutes, like a, a vacuum sealed bag. And it's so delicious. The flavor is insane. Like it would make any meat eater go vegan or at least have vegan tacos. So we made those last night. That's <laughs> definitely like our, our favorite go-to is doing plant-based taco Tuesday. Yum. I'm hungry. Yes, same. <laughs> okay, so fill in the blank. Sustainability is? Being connected with each other and the planet. Awesome. Okay, um, what's your favorite thing about living in Los Angeles? <gasps> the ocean. Being so close to the ocean, mm -hmm. for sure. Would you say you're like a water person? I think so. I just started surfing last year. Brooks, Brooks and I started surfing last year and he is like gone off the rails and absolutely loves it. And is like trying to get on the short board and like eventually like get barreled where I just really enjoy being on a long board and like the vibe of being out in the water and paddling out there and like looking, like watching the pelicans skate right on the water, like seeing dolphins out in the water. But yeah, I just, I'm, I'm very attracted and very um, spiritually fed by being in the water. For sure. Mm -hmm. Love that. Okay. And then what's, do you have like a book, podcast, or creator that's keeping you inspired and curious? Um, I'm reading, I'm, it's funny. I'm the biggest girl fan, uh, fangirl of Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Do you know her? From, <laughs> yeah. She has the How to Save a Planet podcast. And then her book is All We Can Save. Or she co-edited this book, All We Can Save. It's a series of like poems and essays, like an anthology of of literature from climate feminists, which is really good. And then I also started Silent Spring, which is like way uh, heavy, not heavier, but it's, it's like one of the first books about the climate crisis in the 1970s mm -hmm. by Rachel Carson. Um, so that's kind of what I'm reading and listening to right now. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna check out Silent Spring because I've I've seen it all around a lot. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, how can the listeners connect with you? How can they follow you? Yeah, like you mentioned, I go by Re Lauren on all the things: Instagram, TikTok. And that's my website too. Um, how we got connected too, I think, is through my website. There's a contact form, and mm -hmm. I try to respond to every comment and every DM as fast as possible. So yeah, do not hesitate to reach out. I, I love connecting with people in this awesome community. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Lauren, for coming on the podcast. I had the best time talking with you, and um, I'm sure the listeners will love the episode. So Awesome. Thank you for having me, Allie. This was wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Our Playground. If you enjoyed today's conversation, then make sure to follow and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
can also connect with me on TikTok at Ali Fan with two N's. See you next week.